If you've never watched a silent film, you're in the right place. Today we're going to be talking about Intolerance, one of the greatest silent films of all time by D.W. Griffith, with, of course, Peter Rayner, our film knowledge expert extraordinaire. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And a lot of it has been written about me, as it's written about all sorts of people who don't deserve it, and they... Give me credit for innovations which I'm not responsible for and inventions that I didn't invent. And then other people come along and say, I don't deserve the credit, and I want to tell you that I've never claimed that credit. I mention all this because the film you're going to see tonight deserves all the credit that can possibly be given to it. It was made just a year after I was born. And there is almost nothing in the entire vocabulary of the cinema which you won't find in this film. There's also a lot of it which is terribly old-fashioned. And it was old-fashioned, I'd like to point out, even at the time when this film was shown. Because its author, and its author, and maker, and creator was D.W. Griffith, and I may say parenthetically that the film is Intolerance, had his uh, grounding, came out of, and in every way was the child of the 19th century, the late 19th century theater. So you're going to see a lot of the late 19th century theater in this film. A lot that was old and dusty, even at the moment that this was made. And you're also going to see an awful lot that would be new tomorrow because of the genius of the man. His taste and his culture, his background, belong to quite another time. So that is, of course, Orson Welles talking about intolerance and D.W. Griffith. First of all, let's welcome back Peter Rainer for coming back. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joelle. Great to be here as always. Excellent. Uh, I was so excited when you suggested this movie. One, I've only ever seen uh, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. That's the film that they show you in school when they want to talk about the silent era of film. So I was excited to dive into um, something that also wasn't one of the shorts that Mary Pickford did. That was kind of my uh, silent era experiences. Um this movie is so large and so grand um, and so kind of exquisite in its uh, exploration of the entire globe. <laughs> um, what made you want to select it? Why, why do you think this is a film that we should still be talking about? Well, Griffith was uh, the great innovator and the great artist of, of, of movies um, in their infancy. There were other directors before him. Uh, he did not invent the close-up and, and a lot of things that people give him credit for. Uh, but he was the first director to really use the, the grammar of film uh, in ways that, that were powerful and told stories and, and really struck home emotionally in ways that uh, previous films had not. And uh, he started out in New York... Uh, the Biograph Company, um, you know, 1905, I think, 1906 wow. was when he actually started making films. Then he came out to California and did a number of Biograph films in California. He moved up a little bit from where he was to a place called Hollywood, 
and uh, there was uh, some issues at the time with the Edison Trust that owned uh, a lot of the uh, facilities, and they even owned the, the patent to the film itself, and there were some issues with that. So a lot of filmmakers came west to avoid... Uh, you know, the, the patent wars with Edison, who was in New Jersey, and they could always scoot across the border to Mexico if there was an issue. <laughs> so so Griffith really was the, the father of, of American movies in many, many ways. Um, and he did hundreds of short films uh, before he ever did any uh, narrative feature films. Judith of Bethulia, I think, was the first feature film that he directed. And then there was the infamous Birth of a Nation. Uh, that film... Uh, is great in many aspects and horribly racist in, in, in other aspects and remains to this day a cause of great, uh, you know, alarm and furor among people who, who give it credit for re- reviving the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, Griffith was a Southerner. He grew up in Kentucky in a Confederate family, in a Confederate world. He made intolerance in his mind to show that, that he was not uh, a bigot or a racist that he was, uh, you know, promoting, you know. Was pe- this his response to Birth of a Nation then? Yes. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, it was officially his response to Birth of a Nation. It was the, it was the first feature that he made after Birth of a Nation. Uh, there were some other short things in between. But basically this was his big response to the charges that had been made against him, rightly, I feel, uh, about Birth of a Nation. Um, and... The film was, unlike Birth of a Nation, which was uh, one of the most popular box office films of all time, uh, Intolerance was was a commercial disaster. It was a very expensive film. No film had been made on its scale like that. There was a a, a film in in Italy that that was sort of a big budget uh, event, but, but nothing like this. And... Uh, it came out around the time that that uh, we were entering World War One, which didn't help the fact that this film is basically a kind of pacifist manifesto. Sure. So for all those reasons, and it's a bewildering movie because it has you know four different uh, historical eras that are are filmed independently, yeah. but then at a certain point they all coalesce, and the cross cutting between the modern story and the Babylonian story and so forth. Uh, I think was bewildering to audiences. Um, and yet, I saw the film again a few years ago. I've seen it, you know, but maybe half a dozen times. Uh, for all of what Wells was saying correctly, I think about its 19th century antecedents and its old-fashionedness and its derivations from, from stage, particularly in terms of its acting. Uh, it's a fantastically immediate and, and modern movie that looks forward to the whole history of cinema and, and the ways in which you could use film for its emotional depth charges, the use of close-ups, not just to, you know, show somebody bigger, but but to bring you close to, to their emotions, uh, particularly in the modern sequences with uh, the, the Mae Marsh character whose yeah. child is taken from her. You know, scenes like that are, are unbelievably uh, powerful to this day. Uh, so that's sort of the, the setup to, to what Intolerance was. And uh, and even though it was not commercially successful, it was phenomenally successful aesthetically. Influent. I mean, the, the, the there are scenes in this movie that uh, were directly connected to what the Soviets were doing uh, a short time later. Oh, wow. uh, Sergei Eisenstein uh, in the strike and Potemkin, yeah. uh, Pudovkin in Mother. 
uh, and those movies um, were all, uh, and they all wrote extensively, those directors, about Griffith and about the influence that he had on them. Watching this movie, it's easy to see uh, the Battleship Potemkin influences, the giant uh, scene from the stairs and looking out at the boats right. in Potemkin. Is, is, I would not have drawn the conclusion myself, but I definitely see Yeah, the see Odessa it there. steps. I mean, the Babylonian scene in Intolerance features a huge uh, uh, flight of stairs mm-hmm. in the palace, and... Um, I think Eisenstein does a bit better with with those stairs than Griffith did. Uh, nevertheless, the scope of it is is quite amazing. If uh, uh, anyone here locally who goes to the um, Kodak theaters, you know that whole complex where the Oscars yeah. are and everything. If you move a bit over to where above where the subways are and the restaurants, there's a uh, uh, sort of paper mache um, uh, columns that are directly drawn from from the Babylon set of, of Intolerance. I didn't know that. Yeah, next time you're there, check it out. I will. Uh, it's definitely there. The The film of Intolerance was filmed uh, where the Vista Theater used to be, uh, sort of like, uh, I think like Sunset uh, Boulevard and um, and Vista. Okay, uh, wow. Okay, so the heart of Hollywood. Yeah, so that that's where the the set was built and 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 everything's long gone, of course, but um uh it was filmed right in the heart of Hollywood and it employed just about everybody. There were all sorts of people who worked on these films who went on to directing careers of their own, you know. John mm-hmm. Ford was I'm not sure if he was in Intolerance, but he was definitely an extra in The Birth of a Nation, Raoul wow. Walsh, you know, Alan Dwan, just tons of of filmmakers. Uh, and actors c- came out of uh, of, of Griffith's uh, stable, and 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 especially those those two great films. Um, so he, uh, for me, the third of the great trilogy of of Griffith films, and he made quite a few marvelous movies. Um, was Broken Blossoms with Lillian Gish, which is. There are times when I think that's like the greatest movie ever made, or certainly the greatest movie under ninety minutes. Um, uh, she plays a waif in uh, London's Limehouse district, and Richard Barthelmus um, plays a Chinese guy who falls in love with with this waif who's been terrorized by her brutal father. And that aspect of it uh, was a great influence on La Strada, Fellini's film. Um, Griffith had a a stock company of actors that he used. Um, Lillian Gish appeared in, in a great number of, of his movies. Uh, she's in The Birth of a Nation. She's in Intolerance in a small role as a woman who rocks the cradle with a Whitman poem over it, the sort of linking the stories. Uh, but she's front and center in, in Broken Blossoms uh, and also Orphans of the Storm, which was another great uh, French Revolution set uh, epic that Griffith made uh, after after Intolerance. If you guys haven't had an opportunity to watch Lillian Gish perform, or Mary Pickford for that matter, they're, I literally just read like all about their lives the other day. They're like best friends. Um, and both of their performances uh, to this day, um, the New York hat, oh my gosh. Okay, I'm going to collect myself. The New York hat, uh, sorry, Mary Pickford, is maybe some of the best acting you'll ever see on camera. It's like she invented acting for a camera. Um, it's incredible. And Lillian Gish does the same thing. Um, that is so cool. Yeah, I and Pickford in the silent era was was the most popular star in Hollywood. A woman, you know, she was even more popular than than uh, 
uh, Douglas Fairbanks. I, I was reading been that married. Um, like dignitaries yeah. would come to D.C. and then want to go to her house like right. afterwards. You're like, but can we go to the <laughs> what did you call her place with uh, Fairbanks? Pick Fair. There we go. Pick Fair, which was uh, I go back here far enough to have seen it from afar. It was this huge sprawling mansion that I think ultimately was owned by Jerry Buss of the Lakers and oh, wow. various people owned it. Uh, I believe it's been torn down now. But yeah, Pickfair was a huge, was like the Shangri-La of Hollywood. And uh, all of the royalty, both Hollywood and, you know, international, uh, uh, wanted to, to go there. Um, but, but yeah, Pickford was, was America's sweetheart. And she was the most popular star in movies for, for a long time. Uh, she was an amazingly vivacious... Uh, presence on film. I mean, it's easy to see why she was as popular as she was. And as you say, I mean, she she sort of invented... Because a lot of the acting uh, in that era uh, came out of the old theatrical tradition. And particularly in silent film, you know, you had to kind of make grand gestures, right? You couldn't just... I mean, you didn't have dialogue to help you. Uh, so you had to emote in ways, you know, physically that, that often looked, particularly to our eyes, you know, somewhat uh, stagey. Mm-hmm. But there were, uh, but Douglas Fairbanks, you know, who was in, uh, you know, Mask of Zorro and The Thief of Baghdad and all these films, Doug Sr., was another huge star at the time. And he was, he was, it's tremendously fun to watch him, you know, swashbuckle and jump all over the place. I mean, he was really... He was tr- robust. Yeah, I mean, he had just tremendous energy, which carried on to the to the camera. Um, and uh, William S. Hart was another famous silent film star. He was a, a, a Western star. He had a kind of poker face, and he was very, you know, he had an amazing face for the camera. And, and he was in Tumbleweeds and a number of these Westerns, uh, extraordinarily popular, and was one of the people who set the, the myth of the West uh, in Hollywood, along with you know actors like Tom Mix and others who who really uh, you know set the tone for what westerns were and would become, um, you know there and of course the the silent film comedians, uh, you know Buster Keaton, I mean, Buster and, Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, yeah. also Harold Lloyd and and, and Harry Langdon. Uh, I mean these were geniuses. Uh, I mean we can get to that. What I like yeah. what you're laying out here are, are the seeds of, of what Hollywood becomes. And I think that's what's fascinating about exploring the silent era is kind of seeing the roots, the very first flowerings of, of what is to come next, specifically as we're looking at um, these giant blockbusters. I'm curious, um, Orson at the top of the show mentioned that there was um, a lot of 18th century or 1800s theater involved in the production of um, Intolerance. And you kind of see it in the staging and like um, if you've ever seen pictures from old operas, which are just magnificent to look at because the costumes are just incredibly detailed. They have these super elaborate sets um, and you get a lot of that here, too. What is the transition like? like I'm, I'm curious what Griffith had to go through to convince people to make this movie because it is uh, Birth of a Nation is large scale but a lot of it happens outside and so that's easy enough we don't have to build sets for that but here we build these giant pieces and yeah. um, what kind of um, obstacles did he face trying to just get the movie into production he didn't face that many obstacles because at the time he was king of the hill sure. he was the most popular uh, he'd, he'd made the most popular movie ever made Birth of a Nation uh, he he had his pick of any actor. 
He he knew how to make movies up, upside and down. He, uh, you know, it's it's the same today. You know, you make a big, big blockbuster hit, and a lot of doors open for you. A lot of people say yes. And uh, so he didn't have a great deal of, of trouble um, in financing the film. He just kind of... It, it was it was an obsession. This movie really mm-hmm. it, it was more than 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 an obsession to show people that he wasn't a bad guy. It was also his absolute passion for the art of film. I mean, imagine here's somebody at the the birth of film, really, who who is using it in ways that no one has really used it before. It's hard to imagine now because of the billions of feet of footage that have been shot and so much has been done, but. At that time, you know, he had so much at his disposal as an artist that 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 few other directors had, uh, and so the film is a little bit crazy, you know, in a good way. I mean, it's it's kind of a folly as people have described it because imagine you know trying to pitch this to somebody if you didn't have the kind of power he had then without the, and without the language of film you, you have to describe something that hasn't been seen before yeah i mean they say well that's fine but but you need to cut the budget back by you know 90% or something <laughs> but the whole point of this film was the scope of it um but not always but most of the time the scope of this film works to its advantage you know, i'm not saying that this was a great film because it suddenly, you know, introduced these incredible sets and blah. I mean, DeMille movies did that too, and and he did some silent films uh, that were along the lines of Intolerance before he did, you know, Ten Commandments and all those movies. They're not terribly good movies, I think, in retrospect. They're impressive, mm-hmm. but they're not made by an artist. Intolerance is made by a great artist, and so it's not the size and the scale that, that really matters in the end, except maybe historically, but but the passion that he put into it. Uh, and for me, the best of the sequences uh, is is the modern day sequence, where there's the least amount of historical hoo ha and recreation. It's sort of the closest to you know the emotional cutting edge of of the story and what he's putting across Why the audience. Why don't we take a look at this New York sequence so we can get an idea of what the size and scope mm-hmm. of everything is? Because mm-hmm. it is rather impressive. Yep. Uh, for those listening, you cannot hear anything because it is, in fact, <laughs> a silent film. Uh, first of all, beautifully shot. Uh, black and white films don't always kind of glow like this, I don't think, mm-hmm. as far as you know, getting that color range right between uh, the grayscale can be very complicated. It's clear that a lot of attention was paid to details of that here. It's a very large dancing scene. got people in prison and yeah, the, the, and the, these, these scenes are extraordinarily realistic. Uh, you know, these strike scenes in the modern day sequence yeah. are, are really... Um, to the point where you question it could be like documentary, like were they just right, like exactly. guerrilla shooting? Yeah. He, in addition to everything else, he had a great eye for using uh, documentary um, style footage mm. in dramatic films. This is... This is uh, close to the climax of the movie. Our hero is about to be, Robert Heron is about to be uh, hung for uh, something he didn't really deserve. They're testing it out. Hmm. Meanwhile, his wife, played by Mae Marsh, and um, uh, the judge are racing to uh, get the, uh, the sentence 
Reversed. Reversed because they have uh, information that he didn't commit the crime. Uh, that's a close-up of Mae Marsh. Stunning. When she uh, has her baby taken away from her by child custody. That's... Uh, see, there's been, all these stories coalesce uh-huh. in the end and the war, and suddenly people... Stop fighting and the clouds part. Looks like there's a party in the kingdom <laughs> of heaven. Right. The prisons prisons are uh, liberated of all these wonderful guys who are in jail unjustly. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's really incredible about this, first as you say, the artwork. And that's Lillian Gish uh, yeah. rocking the cradle. Just the control of the light throughout is really impressive. But yeah. Yeah. Billy Bitzer was Griffith's cameraman. Um on uh, many of his early great films, and 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 he deserves an amazing amount of credit for for you know creating or developing a lot of uh, camera effects that that became standard much later on. It's incredible work. Uh, I think as somebody who's kind of like a history buff, when you think like this was shot a hundred years ago, yeah. it's it's still wild to me to watch people like up and standing around and expressing the same emotions a hundred years ago. And I think that's kind of the incredible thing about uh, films and specifically films like this that are touching on um, things people are concerned about. You know, we're heading into our first great like world war. Um, this is a shocking time in history. Um, and to see somebody come out with something, uh, like this, not just for uh, pacifist reasons, but also somewhat to clear his own name. Do you know if it's yep. true? Um, I know I've heard a story perpetrated throughout the years, but I, I've never been able to get like a um, a documented resource of it, which is that uh, D.W. Griffith had a maid who he invited to come see Birth of a Nation. She had named her son after him. And then after the movie, I guess she was um, kind of appalled by the sentiment and upset, and that maybe that had a effect on him. Do you know if that's true? I hadn't heard that anecdote. Really? Um, okay. I mean, it 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 could be. Okay. You know, I mean, he got there was a tremendous outcry. Um, you know, from uh, there were black organizations that that rallied against it. Uh, there were, you know, a lot of. Um, uh, but it was shown in the White House when Woodrow Wilson was president at that time. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of a racist, actually, and uh, so he the film uh, was projected for him, and he made this comment that was picked up everywhere, saying it's it's like history written by written with lightning, and you know I mean he was just all over about how great this film was, which it is, but you know with an aster a large asterisk, <laughs> uh, but but um, you know so it. Uh, the best essay that's been written on Griffith, I think, is from by James Agee in his collection Agee on Film, uh, which was written when uh, when Griffith died in 1947. And um, Agee too was a Southerner, and but he, you know, he he said that, that you know making allowances for 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 what that film was. Uh, and it's funny, he doesn't talk much about intolerance in that essay, but, but how he describes what Griffith was an, as an artist and how he, um, you know, just what he set in motion for the rest of, of, of filmmaking is, is, is unparalleled as, as a piece of, of critical writing on, on, uh, on a director. Um, but uh, Griffith lost... It, it, when, um, when he was writing High, I mentioned Fairbanks and Mary Pickford... And Charlie Chaplin, the, the four of them uh, broke away from the studio system as it existed at that point and created 
what was called United Artists. United Artists was, you know, the, here were the four most powerful uh, people in, in Hollywood uh, who decide, you know, we're going to form our own company so we can make the films that we want to make without any interference from any of these moguls. And ultimately, the, the, the company, you know, disbanded. But, um, but Griffith, uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin, of course, did some of his greatest silent films under that aegis. But he, he made silent films in the, in, in, in the sound era, unlike everybody else. Because Chaplin had the power to go silent even through the mid-30s. Yeah. You know, you don't realize, I mean, he made City Lights and Modern Times and The Gold Rush. Uh, I think particularly City Lights and Modern Times when silent film was no longer happening. No one was making silent films anymore. Was he of the same mind as Mary Pickford that adding sound was like, what did she say, putting lipstick on the Venus de Milo? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, because the Tramp character, the Charlie Chaplin, you know, little Tramp, really exists silent. I mean, you, you, he did speak a little bit. It, it's not really a tramp film, the, the great dictator. He, you know, mm-hmm. he speaks there. But, but, but basically, it's a character that, uh, you know, unlike so many silent characters, actually was benefited by, by silence. It wasn't just because they were only making silent movies. So, and, and Chaplin feared that, that once sound came in, and he had a kind of high voice and, it went, you know, in a British accent. He was British. So I think he just felt that that would ruin his uh, his his whole persona on he film. He saw it ruin a lot of his colleagues. Yeah, it did. I mean, there were a lot of actors uh, who did not survive the silent era. And, um, uh, you know, Mae Marsh, who was such a great actress in so many of these early films. Uh, I forget that poet Vachel Lindsay wrote a poem about her once, you know, he said she's the Madonna of cinema with the something or other in her eyes. I mean, it was, it was wonderful what he wrote about her. Um, she survived as an actress for many, many years, but mostly in small roles. John Ford was a great friend of hers and champion. So he would always put her into, you know, supporting roles in his films. And, but, um, you know, Pickford didn't really do a whole lot in the in the in the sound era of uh, Fairbanks ditto and and you know it was only Chaplin who had the power to to make silent films in the sound era and even that only lasted until 1940 when he did the great dictator and went fully into sound and Monsieur Verdoux and you know in 47 he had a, he completely went against the the the, the, the tramp character he had to um uh Griffith was uh, a director who um he, Way Down East was a, was a phenomenal uh, film and a great success. It has famous scene of, of Lillian Gish uh, having to be rescued on an ice floe as it's going toward the water, you know, over the, the falls. Oh, my goodness. And, and, and she actually got – she put her hand in the frozen water and, and to, you know, to the end of her days it was a problem. And, you know, I mean, this guy, you know, ru- rushing, jumping from ice floe to ice floe to get to her before the – you know, but it's a it's it's a terrific movie. Offerings of the Storm is a terrific movie. He made a World War One movie uh, set in Germany that is a, a forerunner of neorealism called Isn't Life Wonderful. It was a big influence on De Sica and Rossellini and those directors when they did their neorealist films after World War Two. Uh, even his last movie, The Struggle, which is derided so much, uh, well, that and Abraham Lincoln, but The Struggle is about an alcoholic, and Griffith became a very heavy drinker in his life, but it has mm-hmm. some incredible scenes in it. Um, but he ended up, uh, you know, uh, kind of living in the Knickerbocker Hotel, uh, drinking a lot. 
all of the people that he brought into the business were were running the business and making movies. And he was in his hotel room. Uh, he was given an honorary Oscar by the Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and he he said, "What art? What science?" You know, uh, it was oh, it, 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 it was it was a difficult. It's a difficult story. Um, Ezra Goodman, in a book called "The the uh, the Decline and Fall of Hollywood." Uh, was one of the last people to actually get an interview with Griffith, and he only did it by essentially letting him think that there was uh, a girl he was bringing up to the room and some drinks, and then he broke into the hotel and sat him down, and 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 they did this interview, which is which is really quite amazing. Where Griffith finds, all right, you got me. Then he opens up and talks about his whole life and, and history in Hollywood. Um, but uh, it was true of a lot of silent film giants that that they didn't really make the transition well the worst is, is is buster keaton i mean buster keaton is arguably you know i mean at least chaplin's equal as a director he's he's a greater director he was an amazing amazing director keaton if you look at films like sherlock jr and the navigator i mean they're amazingly well directed the His general stunts are beautifully shot like they're they're incredible stunts in and of themselves but then the way he composes the shot to highlight the stunt is always beautiful yeah, I mean, he, he he had an incredible eye. I, I'm not sure he even knew that he had it, but you know, he was a he was a, a vaudevillian. Who, you know, his parents threw him around the stage. That's where he got the name Buster, and uh, uh, you know, but he was an incredible director. And 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 all of these silent comics, but especially Keaton, worked very with great improvisation and intuitively. And when the studio system, you know, clicked in and sound came in in the 30s. These guys were were bereft because suddenly they had to, you know, follow orders and call sheets and things that they'd never had to do before, and uh, and it just didn't work. And it, it it's not because Ke- Keaton's voice. I mean, you've probably heard him in you know Beach Blanket Bingo or something. <laughs> but you know, I mean, Keaton had the perfect voice for that. Unlike Chaplin, yeah, Keaton's voice perfectly fit his his kind of you know. Uh, physicality, uh, physicality, and 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 you know, great stone face, which was actually very, very expressive. Um, you know, he talked like this, and uh, it was. But you know, and he he did he did a number of, of of sound films that that were actually pretty funny. But he ended up writing uh, gags for uh, uh, you know Danny Kay and Jimmy Durante and a lot of other comics. Do you just attribute that to the nation kind of wanting to move on? Like there's there's a new wave of technology and we just don't want to be... Because Buster looked really... Like even into Sunset Boulevard, his little bit role there, he's like comedic gold for the two seconds he's on screen. It's so funny. Um, and he's like, he's a good looker, you know? So it, it always kind of astounded yeah. me how many people were able to just kind of be let go. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I didn't... I should probably... Have yes. marked this, but I have a, a ch- an essay on Keaton. I love when we go to the book; it's my favorite. <laughs> uh, okay, here we go. Yeah, I mean Keaton. There have been many documentaries, some very good ones mm. on on Keaton, including um, Kevin Brownlow, who did an amazing documentary on not only uh, Keaton but Griffith and Chaplin, and and the whole silent era. I mean, he's sort of the the great chronicler of of silent film, but also you know Richard Schickel did a wonderful documentary on Charlie Chaplin, so did Peter Jones and others. Anyway, this is Rainer on Film, 30 Years of Film Writing, 30 Years of Film Writing in a Turbulent and Transformative Era. End of shameless plug. Uh, but but the, the Keaton, um, let me just pick one thing about, because uh, Steamboat Bill Jr. Is, is one of the funniest movies ever made. Uh, 
it has so many classics. There's one scene in it which, to this day, people gasp. Is a huge tornado in this small country town, and and he's standing there while the the facade of a of a house yes. falls right over him. Yes, and the window that's cut out of the top floor, you know, falls on it him. Frames right over. Frames him. over that's him. Crazy. That was not a a. It's that was it's, it's real. It's real. I mean, he could have been killed easily. You know, I mean, it's uh, whoa. The clock tower yeah. too is real too. When he's hanging off the clock. Yeah. That is just insane. And Harold Lloyd in Safety Last. Thank yeah. You. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it it all of this stuff. It's it's quite amazing. I mean, Keaton got really banged up over the years. He sure. you know he broke his collarbone many times and but the original uh, Tom Cruise. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> I've never heard the two of them spoke. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I say like at the beginning and the and at the end of his career, Keaton's face was a was a classic. Uh, was a classic. James Agee wrote that Keaton's face uh, in his silent films ranked almost with Lincoln's as an early American archetype, and the face he presented at the end. From the drivel of beach blanket bingo movies to the more high toned drivel of Sam- Samuel Beckett's film was archetypal as well. It was a face of a slap-shoed, flat-hatted vaudevillian turned soulful. It was a face that told us there was more resonance in the comic's art, more ghostliness than you might have ever imagined. In the movies, his sorrowful bewilderment gave his extraordinary handsomeness a spirituality that at bottom was not comic or meant to be. Uh, When sorrow ceases to be mysterious, it becomes pathos. That's what separates good Keaton from Bad Chaplin. Keaton never really asked for love in his movies, but we in the audience felt protective anyway. Only the girls in his movies immediately perceive his innate grace and sensitivity. Keaton's athleticism was funny and fraught with pratfalls, but it was also robust and full of Yankee cunning. Hmm. His mixture of somnolence and daring do was sexy. He never failed to get the girl at the end, although he always seemed perplexed about what to do with her once he got her. <laughs> That's because Keaton was also and ultimately the archetypal loner. In the midst of crowds, he seemed most alone, and that aloneness emblematized in his face was the still center of his art. So, you know, that's Keaton. I mean, he Keaton is, is to this day, I think, almost avant-garde in, in some of the Sherlock Jr. He plays as a, a movie projectionist who enters into the film and I mean that was kind of Dada and avant-gardist, you know, back then in the twenties. Uh, and here he is, this you know, silent comic vaudevillian who's doing all this crazy, weird, amazing stuff. Um, Chaplin, I think, is for me, City Lights is is, is such, a, especially, uh, is, is such an ineffable movie. And the final close-up of that film, where the uh, you know he's restored the sight to this blind flower girl, and she doesn't know that 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 he's the one who did it. She thought it was some rich suitor who disappeared after she got her sight because he couldn't bear for her to see him as this poor tramp. Uh, but at the end of the movie, uh, she recognizes that this is who it is, and she says, "You know, you, you," and he just kind of looks and he has this flower and he's smiling. And the close up of him. Is I think you know uh, many people have agreed with the, the greatest single shot in movies. Uh, it is it is filled with every possible emotion. You know, extreme sorrow, extreme happiness, everything. It, it's it's the most amazing piece of acting. Um, 
so, you know, there was such a wealth of greatness in these silent films. Uh, Lillian Gish was, was, was a great, great actress who, who did, to some extent, move, move into the sound era. You know, we did Night of the Hunter uh, a while back and, and here, and, and, you know, she's marvelous in that. She's in, you know, Duel in the Sun. She's in The Cobweb, a lot of movies. Um, I met her once, uh, the AFI, briefly. The AFI had a, a Lifetime Achievement Award. Wow. That's when they were still giving awards to people who, you know, were over 40, uh, who weren't going to get a, you know, a high Nielsen rating. Yes. Um, but, uh, but, you know, she, she lived into, into her 90s. And she wrote a, a very interesting book called The Movies, Mr. Griffith and Me. And uh, she, you know, she directed a movie too. I did not know that. The White Sister. Yeah, she directed a film. She was one of the very Lois Weber and another a number of other women were directing early on in the silent era. Uh, But she she directed one movie, and one movie only. And then she remarked afterwards that she didn't think that directing was a fit job for a woman. Of course. Um, um, But uh, the, the 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 greatness of her acting, I think shows up most in two films that were not directed by Griffith, but by a, uh, a Swedish import to Hollywood, Victor Sostrom, mm. who did two films called The Wind and then the adaptation of Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. And in both of those films, she gives just m- among the greatest of, of performances ever. Uh, you know, and if you've ever read Scarlet Letter and you imagine her as, you know, Hester Prynne, and it, it's, 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 Sostrom was a great director in his own right, um, and uh, and I believe he used uh, uh, some of the same cinematographers that, that Griffith did. So it seems there was no lack of uh, talent lost as we move into the studio system. Women did kind of lose out. We had a lot of women uh, taking a stab here and there directing. Mary Pickford is consistently directing at the time um, up until the, uh, the sound era comes out. We lose a lot of our great actors. Um, but Intolerable kind of lays the groundwork for big blockbuster pictures, which is what we're going to talk about when we come back next time. Um, Thank you so much for walking us through the silent era and giving us so many great books to read and movies to go see. Um, I know I'm definitely going to be rewatching City Lights tonight because you got me all nostalgic for it and it's a great movie. Um, I'll also be reading Kevin Brownlow's uh, book on Keaton because that sounds really fascinating. I love Buster Keaton, but I don't know that much about him. Um, So thank you so much for being here with us again. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Joelle. Thank you. Guys, we'll be back next week at 4 o'clock. Back here, Pega will be back with us. Uh, So we'll see you next Thursday. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.